Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilded Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. Hi, this is Thomas Thurston, and today I'm talking with Josh Lynn, who's a postdoc associate at the Yale Center for the Study of Representative Institutions and a lecturer at the Department of History here at Yale University. He uh, received his PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and he's currently uh, working on the, his book manuscript uh, titled Preserving the White Man's Republic, the Democratic Party and the Transformation of American Conservatism, 1847 to 1860. Josh, it's really great having you here. Thank you, Tom. So uh, let me begin, uh, as I usually do, by asking, how did you uh, come into this topic? I became interested in this topic looking at this era of political history, the 18, late 1840s and 1850s, and I was surprised by the rhetoric that especially the Democratic Party was using. They were using the word conservative repeatedly to describe themselves and their ideology. And this was surprising in that this was the party of Andrew Jackson. It had often been regarded as the progressive party, um, especially in contrast to the Whig Party or other American political actors who were considered the conservatives. So I was curious what it meant that this seemingly progressive or so-called progressive, even sometimes economically radical party, suddenly began to call itself conservative. And I wanted to know what that meant and why they began to do that. So yeah, it does seem like kind of kind of at odds with how uh, I tend to think of conservatism in the early American Republic as centered around the, the Federalists and their uh, aristocratic ways and, and the way in which they kind of take authority uh, uh, over things, as opposed to this expansion of the franchise mm-hmm. and and uh, and this sort of thing. What is it that distinguishes this this new kind of self-described form of conservatism? Right. And so I thought initially I would I stumbled upon this moment when Jacksonian Democrats maybe were becoming more traditionally conservative. They were becoming less they, – they had been the party of democracy, the party of limited government, which was at that time a very radical notion, the party of economic liberalism, trying to expand opportunities for white men. So I thought maybe in calling themselves conservatives, they were going undergoing a transition to being what like what you described, more elitist, more traditionally conservative in a European or an American Federalist or Whig sense, looking to the state as this powerful entity, um, less willing to entrust the people with political power, and maybe even subscribing to notions of church hierarchy or social hierarchies. And what I found was that in calling themselves conservatives, Democrats did not abandon democracy. They didn't abandon... uh, the, their notion of the sanctity of liberal individual rights for white men or the value of a limited state. So it was the same ideas, same that Andrew Jackson had um, taught his party, but they were just now being called conservative, which was an interesting rebranding of their traditional notions. Right, and, uh, and in fact, their, um, their base, essentially, they'd created themselves by these uh, moves to extend the franchise to 
uh, to non-property owner, owners and to, to support uh, immigrants. Uh, so in, in the northern cities, mm-hmm. there's a lot of recent in, immigrants who are attracted uh, to the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, so, so what happens? I mean, obviously one of the kind of clear uh, signs on the horizon is that the Democratic Party by this time is the party of the South mm-hmm. and the party of slavery. It is. It's it's a it, it it's base. It has a strong southern base. The party had always been staunchly in favor of states' rights, preserving slavery, but also preserving white supremacy nationwide. So while it is a southern, it is heavily based in the South. And as the political system undergoes changes in the 1850s, the Democratic Party in much of the South is the only surviving viable party. But it's really important too, and this is what I talk about in my in my book, is that it's still a national party. It, right. It, in, in, it's competitive in most northern states. The northern electorate is roughly uh, half Democratic. And so it's, it is a northern party. And what's interesting is, is that the ideas of white supremacy that are, that make sense before the southern electorate work before the northern electorate as well. So the party is national and it's not just its, uh, its institutions, but it's also national in its rhetoric and its ideas. The same ideas that work to energize white male voters in the south often energize white male voters in the north. So when they rebrand themselves as conservative, it's more about protecting the gains that they have created as a party um, for white men. All white men have political power. And at a moment when they see that power is under threat, they begin to sort of retrench and call themselves a conservative party to protect the democracy they've created for white men. Right. In some ways, they're caught in this demographic trap that we're familiar with a little now in that uh, when your constituency uh, are, are white men and you've sewn that up, all you can really do is protect that constituency. There's no, you know, if that is definitional, there's no way to really explain. Uh, expand beyond that. And, and in fact, it's, it's uh, I mean, what is their attitude towards, uh, uh, towards uh, the women's rights or other reform-minded uh, movements that are springing up, particularly in the North? So they're often just, they're horrified by reform movements. They're, they're, hor- they're horrified by the ascendancy of anti-slavery politics, which are taking the institutionalized form as political parties, the Free Soil Party in the late 1840s, and then, of course, the Republican Party. They see these as existential threats to the white man's democracy they've created. And previously, they hadn't had to deal with these reform impulses taking such a politicized form. They'd always been against abolitionism, you know, dating back to the 1830s with the, the, the more modern abolition movement. But they hadn't had to address it as a, a, a threat to the actual political structure in the same way. And they see, often incorrectly, they see reformers as advocating an expansion of the franchise to women and to Americans of color, when rarely that was the case. Most anti-slavery American, white anti-slavery Americans did not see um, political equality for African Americans. But they see any threat to slavery or white supremacy or the racial status quo as a threat to the to the democracy they created where all white men were equal. They're, they're really radical notions of white male equality right. were premised on inequality for everyone else. And so to upset that equilibrium in any way would destroy democracy in their minds. So they've really uh, conceived of a democracy uh, uh, that is based on white supremacy here. This is uh, kind of a, a, a like the, the, the Vulcan or, yes. you know. Uh, 
And how does that also express itself in deference to elites? Uh, again, you know, you think of, of uh, conservatives looking at uh, looking back at tradition, so that so that your uh, that that your uh, the medical profession or or uh, the the universities or uh, the church and its kind of forms of hierarchy or even the federal government itself and the way in other words these kind of very structured hierarchical uh, uh, situations it seems by your logic that 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 too is becoming overturned that deference to authority absolutely the the democratic political culture they've created. Uh, rejects deference, enshrines white male equality, um, and the sanctity of all white men's individual rights. So this is what this is, is it's a very American conservatism. They don't look to European conservatives. They don't look to great writers like Edmund Burke who, who, who do exactly right. what you said, yeah. write about how the state needs to be lionized, how we need to look to the clergy, socioeconomic elites. And so that they are taking conservatism on a brand new trajectory now by taking ideas that were radical, enlightenment ideas of rights and democracy, and calling them conservative. And so to some extent, it is a very convenient, this political rebranding of their uh, their partisan beliefs. But it does have a legacy in that we have an American conservatism today that can be quite populist right. and has made peace with democracy um, in interesting ways. And the point, too, that you brought up about this being tied to white supremacy, this their democracy did not just coexist with white supremacy. It, white supremacy was intrinsic to it. It was foundational. It was, it was premised on it. And the best example of that is in the 1850s, the signature policy of the Democratic Party and really part, really the, the, the core of their conservative set of beliefs is popular sovereignty. Right. Can you explain a little yes. how, how that is so? So this was the idea that... In a, in a narrow sense, it was a policy idea that in the federal territories, when debating whether or not slavery would expand, which is really the flashpoint over slavery in the 1850s is its expansion into new territories, Democrats recommended that the federal government not rule on the issue. So once again, there are conservatives that will disempower the state. They're anti-statist right. conservatives, which is a new concept. And they want the people, meaning white male settlers in the territories, to make these decisions, to decide through the democratic process if slavery would expand to a new territory or not. And so in a very narrow sense, it's, it applies to this one issue. But it's also their animating worldview of white men at the local level should, through majoritarian democracy, decide everything, including morally fraught issues such as slavery. But doesn't that uh, relying on popular sovereignty, doesn't it risk uh, losing to, uh, say, a, a kind of anti-slavery uh, northern white men who may, in fact, decide that, that they want no place for? Mm -hmm. In other words, how do they kind of come up with what seems to me, especially with the birth of the Republican Party, a free soiler uh, kind of like based democratic in a, in, a, in a similar sense that it's uh, kind of putting itself forward as protecting white men as well, perhaps. And this is where they get themselves into trouble. They're, as a party of Northerners and Southerners, they promise this as a great solution. The federal government doesn't have to take a, take a side on slavery. So Southerners and Northerners can coexist in the same party, and anti-slavery Democrats can even coexist with pro-slavery Democrats. The problem is when it comes up to the vote, and they might have a situation where territorial settlers outlaw slavery, much to the um, embarrassment of the Southern sure. wing of the party. Right. But there are even other examples of what uh, what 
it's funny what the people can do when they're entrusted with democratic power. And so in the territory, sometimes they do things that embarrass Democrats, such as in Utah, the Mormons legalize polygamy. Right. And they claim that they're exercising their popular sovereignty. So this is the problem of taking something like democracy, which can be radical and can be very progressive in the hands of the disempowered, for example, and saying that it's a conservative remedy. So it doesn't always work. And the party actually, by the end of the 1850s, begins to break down. They've applied popular sovereignty to territories like Kansas, like Nebraska, Utah, and it breaks down. It's too radical. And a lot of Amer traditional American conservatives, former Whigs, some those in the Federalist mindset who look more toward European notions of conservatism point to the Democrats in the 1850s and say their conservatism is false. Their conservatism was premised on these radical notions of democracy and they're false conservatives. And this is and it serves them right for trying to trying right. to do this. This is what they yeah. get. They yeah, open a Pandora's box uh, yeah. of, of because democracy also was something that was somewhat feared. This is mob it was. rule. It's it was. This, and in all most Americans across the political spectrum at least paid lip service to democracy and the power of the people. And you have conservatives by the end of the 1850s, traditional American conservatives of the Whig mindset or the Federalist mindset saying, well, we all pay heed to this idea that the people have power, but we don't actually act on it. We don't actually make the people instruments of government themselves. Right, because we have a representative democracy that's right, that's right. the best and, kind you know, of lead the, the we rest. Have, we have written constitutions. We don't want to invoke the people actually governing themselves directly all the time. And the Democrats' mistake was they actually tried to put this theory of democracy and the power of the people into practice. And that's where they got themselves into trouble. Now, um, uh, how, too, does religion figure into all of this? Because uh, they they are creating a very uh, broad coalition of, uh, of, of their, their, their base is broad. It, it, it includes uh, uh, recent Catholic immigrants as well as uh, uh, mainstream Protestants. How do they bring together this, uh, uh, this coalition at a time when there's a parties like the, the Know-Nothings mm -hmm. who are defined to, uh, in opposition to the Catholic vote. So this is another place where they're working against how conservatism had existed in, in America up to this time, where a lot of American conservatives were tied to established Protestant churches. They looked to the, to the clergy as social leaders. They looked toward Protestant um, moralism to shape behavior. And the Democrats, because they do have this diverse coalition, of Catholics and Protestants, but especially German and Irish Catholic immigrants, they become a very a party that is a proponent of secularism and the separation of church and state. So they are actually some of the most eloquent defenses of separation of church and state in the 19th century are by slaveholding Democrats. Southern mm -hmm. Democrats especially sought to cultivate an alliance between the slaveholding South and Irish Catholic immigrants in northern cities, this intersectional north-south alliance. And they see themselves as following in the traditions of Thomas Jefferson, this great proponent of religious liberty. And so the Democratic Party becomes the defenders of immigrants right. with against the know-nothing party and American nativism and the defender of the rights of religious minorities. So it's an interesting, and this is another reason that I was an in, initially interested in this topic is these Democrats are on the one hand white supremacists and pro-slavery, but on the other hand, they are also the advocates of religious liberty, separation of church and state, seemingly very progressive ideas. Right. And it's it doesn't make sense to modern ears that these could go together, 
but it does make logical sense for them. And I assume, uh, uh, in addition, uh, kind of an opposition to moral uplift movements in general. I, I can't imagine them weighing in uh, in favor of the temper of temperance, for example, as a as a political uh, force. Right, and so one motivation for their secularism and their defense of Catholicism is that they are reacting against once again these reform movements, which are all, often inspired by Protestant theology and Protestant churches. So abolitionism, temperance, the American nativist anti-Catholic movement, they see this as the corruption of politics by allowing religion and morality to enter politics. So they have this idea that religion and morality should not be in politics and that because once you start using the state to impose morality or to impose theology, that once again, it's an infringement on white men's liberties. Um, in the minds of late antebellum Democrats, white men should be able to drink if they want, should be able to own other people if they want, should be able to practice whatever religion they want. And that brings me to kind of my next question is, is how does gender uh, uh, fit into this? Because it seems that all these movements that we're talking about, this is these are the movements that women kind of step in and take a public, a public role. I, how, how then is the Democratic Party responding to the place, the new place of women in, in public and in reform and political movements in general? So this is the Democratic Party is the avowed white man's party of this era. And important to that is both the identity as white and as the party of men. So gender is, is key. And this is where political history has been getting exciting lately, is this recognition that not only do political parties differ on issues of political economy or foreign policy, but they also differ on gender relations, the household relations, household governance, and race relations. So each party also advocates in its platform, if not always stated explicitly, its own view of gender relations, masculinity. So Democrats have a very clear idea of what makes a man and what makes a white man. And that is autonomy, individual autonomy, moral choice, uh, self-governance on issues like temperance, whether or not to consume alcohol. Individuals should make the decision, not the state. And so they see reformers as the opposite of that. They see them as effeminate, so either effeminate men or manly women who right, are in right. these, refor these reform movements. And they also see them, though, as corrupted not just in their gender, but they see them as corrupted racially. So white men, by joining reform movements, by, be, by aligning with abolitionists or joining the anti-slavery Republican Party, they forfeit their manhood, but they also forfeit their prerogatives of whiteness. And so there's this interesting rhetoric of reformers and especially when, when Democrats or members of established parties join new parties or reform movements, they turn into women or they turn into African-Americans. Right. And I, in fact, want to remark on, on your work and what I've, uh, what I've uh, heard of it and seen, uh, the, the focus that you give to, uh, to, to the rhetoric the, mm -hmm. the, the, and, and the uh, uh, the uh, depiction of of opposition and and how gender and race uh, fit into uh, the well, you know, mm -hmm. you can go on to cartoons, to mm -hmm. uh, songs, to that. Could you say a little sure. about the uh, that? Sure. When we look at the the rhetoric and realize that the gen these political sources, nineteenth century political sources, are saturated with racial rhetoric and gender rhetoric to the point that it's just seen as natural to politics. But if we look at how it actually functions, it functions in very precise ways. And we see that 
politics and other issues of identity, gender, race, the household, are intimately interrelated. And so one's partisan identity goes hand in hand with how one would have defined oneself as a man or as a white man in this era. So this idea that when you switch parties, and the 1850s was a time of intense partisan instability, old, old established parties collapsing, new parties forming. And especially in the minds of Democrats, white supremacists, the party, trans party transition and party change was analogized as transgressive sexuality. So if a white man jumped ship and left the Democratic Party to join the Republican Party, it was an act. He's being unmanned. He's being he's, unmanned, yeah. but he's also engaging in interracial sex huh. because he's joining a coalition that might— The black Republican, The black Republican yeah. Party, even though often Republicans did not advocate social equality right. for African-Americans, and certainly African-Americans were not, for the most part, voters in the Republican Party. It was seen as joining a coalition with black men. It was seen as reformers were also were also attacked for mixing men and women at their rallies, right. at their speaking events, for allowing women to speak publicly. Right. So this was all seen as very transgressive. So you, So joining this party could be engaged in interracial sex. It could be described as engaging in same-sex sexuality or free love. All sorts of illicit activities were rumored to be going on at these rallies. So. Right. And, and that way, they seem to be playing a very conservative, traditional conservative role of being the standard bearers of, uh, of kind of a conventional um, morality and, and mores uh, mm -hmm. uh, as, they're, as they're presenting them. Because the party, in defending the rights of white men, as individuals is also defending what comes with that to to make that individualism a reality, and that is the patriarchal household. White men should be the patriarchs of their households, according to Democrats. So they are defending that. Right. This is where they are maybe a little more traditionally conservative. If they are they are defending um, older conceptions of the household that are seen as being challenged by reformers and by a more um, capitalistic economy in the North, especially. Right, right. So. And so there are these cartoons of henpecked husbands uh, with mm -hmm. the kind of uh, uh, abolitionist uh, shrieking wife and uh, wearing the ap wearing the apron and, mm -hmm. and taking care of the babies and in a way that the anti uh, uh, anti suffrage uh, uh, later on in the twentieth early twentieth century will do as well. Your study ends at eighteen sixty, mm -hmm. which seems to me to be a uh, telling moment. This is really uh, where there's this uh, break. This partisanship uh, reaches a, a peak uh, with the election of of Lincoln. Uh, the the nation divides. Uh, how does uh, why why stop there? And what do you kind of make of that moment? So, I stop at 1860 because my my book is a history of the National Democratic Party, and I was very interested in how they were able to during this period of intense sectionalism and animosity over slavery between white Southerners and white Northerners, keep a party together of white Northerners and white Southerners, which is an, is, is an impressive accomplishment that they were able sure. to create an ideology, not just self-serving, not just playing pragmatic politics, but actually create a, a vibrant ideology that united men across the sexual div divide. In 1860s, though, the party does split. It can no longer... Um, stand on a platform of popular sovereignty. It can't reconcile some really fundamental divisions over slavery. So I end it there because the party splits in half, runs two different candidates, a northern candidate and a southern candidate in 1860. And the story after 1860 is a different story because the context has changed. The sure. Democratic Party 
continues to more validly consider itself a conservative party. In some southern states, the Democratic Party renames itself the conservative Hmm. party or the Democratic and conservative party. But it's a different landscape in that slavery is abolished and the reality, the, the fear of black political actors is now a reality. And so there's a lot of changes to the ideology, even as they do perpetuate themselves as a conservative party. You mentioned that this uh, is a study of the uh, the Democrats as a national party that ends in 1860 when the party splits. What are the terms of that split, and how uh, you know how does it affect the the unity that you've been talking uh, about to this point? So often the split is seen as just basically a split over slavery. And that's how it's often portrayed, that the split within the Democratic Party is part of this larger national split over slavery, anti-slavery North versus pro-slavery South. And that really overstates the disagreement among Democrats on this issue because Democrats largely did not disagree over slavery existing in the American Republic. They may have disagreed over whether it should spread. And in fact, many Northern Democrats didn't want to see it spread. They may have disagreed over the morality of it. But they didn't disagree over its constitutionality, its legality, and at a really basic level, the rights of white men to engage in the institution of slavery if they wanted to. So most Hmm. Democrats were happy to let white Southerners have slavery. And all Democrats were invested in white supremacy. So it's a much more narrow. It's The party falls apart very narrowly on the application of popular sovereignty to the territories. It's not a fundamental disagreement over race and slavery, which is one reason why after the war, the party is able to resuture itself so quickly, is that it becomes once again the party of white supremacy, the party of white men's rights and local autonomy. And so it becomes the part and one way they're able to come back together even after this this split and in the a post war atmosphere of sectional acrimony that still exists is once again returning to their formula of localism. Right. Let, let the South alone. Let northern states do what they need to do. So they can avoid taking a stance on some really nasty issues, including the continued issue of temperance, by trying to devolve power to local majorities of white men once again. It becomes a, a formula by which the party can maintain itself. And uh, and not only that, it's a, it seems to be a kind of a form of political conservatism that uh, maintains itself as well. In, in other words, this what you describe as this very American uh, form. Uh, well, we have a, a president in the White House with uh, Andrew Jackson's portrait uh, in the Oval Office uh, who speaks to many of the same issues. Uh, is, is this a, a, a kind of ideology that, that just is a part of uh, our American political landscape? I think it is. It is. The the 1850s Democrats and their desire to preserve white supremacy and slavery bequeathed to the American political tradition this idea that democracy and libertarian ideas of individual rights and small government can be used to conserve, not affect change, but to preserve something or even to be somewhat reactionary. Um, democracy can empower all sorts of people and local majorities can do all sorts of things. So there is an ability for conservatives today to invoke the people as the final arbiter of really fraught issues like same-sex marriage. Right. So if so 
invoking majoritarianism or devolving power back to the states or even smaller local levels can be a way to prevent change. Sure. It can be a way to impact, especially if you know which way the majority is going to going to go. Right. So this idea, this this populist idiom of invoking the people, relying on the people, trusting in the good sense of the people, the silent majority of Americans, can be very conservative if either you're not going to act on it, if it's just a rhetorical invocation of the people, or if you do act on it, you're confident that the majority will choose to conserve something rather than affect change. Or, of course, if you can control the franchise so that your uh, constituency uh, right. has and that's, the advantage. And we see that, too, with the with, um, efforts to police the franchise, voter ID restrictions, uh, limiting early voting, things like that. It's done in the name of our democracy. It's, it's done in the name of purifying the ballot box, the preserving the integrity of American democracy. But it often, as we know, has the result not only of limiting the franchise, but limiting the franchise in a very racial way, um, which is very reminiscent of 1850s Democrats. Yeah, Josh, you couldn't have planned it any better. It's a great time for your book to be coming. Yeah, well, it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> that there is timeliness to it. Yes. Uh, you have uh, another project that is uh, that that focuses on this as well, which is uh, a very close look at, at two prominent uh, figures uh, from this period. Could you say a little more about that? So in, in the course of my research, one of the, the, the leading Democrats of this generation was Stephen A. Douglas, of course, and he's known often for his famous debates with Lincoln. But what I was struck by as I was doing this research was that people associated Stephen Douglas with Frederick Douglass, the prominent abolitionist. And they became nicknamed in the press and and in speeches as the Black Douglas and the White Douglas. Huh. And it's a, this fascinating way to bring a white supremacist and a black abolitionist in dialogue. A lot of political history of this period if it's de dedicated to traditional parties and governmental history, rarely finds a way to bring in black political actors. Right. And a lot of histories of the anti-slavery movement or abolitionism don't find a way to bring in the, the white political party. So it's a fascinating way to put them in dialogue. And Frederick Douglass especially, for over a decade, played with this idea of black and white Douglas. He teased Stephen repeatedly. He would call him his namesake or his relative, just knowing that this would really rankle a white supremacist Democrat to in any way be associated with an African-American. So for really over a decade, they have, they have a relationship. They have a relationship through the press. They have a relationship through their surrogates talking about each other. They met themselves on several occasions, talked to each other, talked about one another. And it's so the project I'm working on now, entitled The Black Douglas and the White Douglas, is about using their relationship to look at 1850s political history in a much broader perspective and look at ideas of race and gender and political theory by putting really two polar opposites in, in contact. Yeah, uh, that reminds me, um, I remember hearing a story about, a, a, I think, a high school in Illinois named after uh, Stephen Douglas and the controversy over that, and someone had suggested just adding an S uh, to another S to the name of the high school and leaving it at that. Um, <laughs> can I uh, ask before, uh, before we go, could you, are there uh, other readings that you could uh, suggest uh, for people who are interested in this topic? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I would recommend as as classic, um, not, not as really good, solid accounts of Jacksonian America, Jacksonian politics, the history of the Democratic Party, works by Harry Watson and Sean Wilentz, mm -hmm. and they're very up to date 
works. They they modernize. They're modernizing political history um, and putting it in a more diverse context. And right now, especially late antebellum Civil War era political history is going through this nice renaissance right now. There's lots of really interesting scholarship. So I would also recommend works by Matthew Mason, uh, Rachel Sheldon, right. that are doing a lot of really interesting things, bringing in, looking at ca- characters and parties that don't get a lot of attention and also, and often bringing in I- ideas of race and gender in really interesting ways. So. Well, thanks, and we'll have a a list of some of these resources available uh, on our website. And Josh, I'm glad you're going to be here for another year, and it's great to get together and talk with you, and thanks so very much. Great. Thanks so much, Tom. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Additional support is provided by the Rabina Foundation. Each episode is produced by Thomas Thurston and Daniel Vera with additional production support by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the Gilda Lehrman Center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.